title of today's sermon is Flip That House and is taken from Zechariah 1, verses 18 through 21. Thank you, Jennifer. Appreciate that very much. We're in the book of Zechariah, finishing up chapter 1. I trust that you've enjoyed the experience of getting to know one of the minor prophets so far. Hopefully it will speak to your heart about your life and how we should live in readiness for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer together and ask the Lord to direct our thinking and to be our teacher as we study it together. Father, thank you so much for life. We know it's a gift from you. Help us, Father, to use it in a responsible way as your steward. Help us, Lord, to live for you. May this book be an impetus towards that end, we would ask in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a student in seminary at Dallas, I worked as a painter and many other things. At one point, I tried my hand at flipping a house. I partnered with another seminary student to tackle the house, and it was a terrible condition. He put up the money, and I put up the work. The thing about tackling an older home and trying to make it marketable, that is, restore it to its former glory, one must first tear out that which has fallen into disrepair and then replace it with that which is new. In many ways, it's more difficult than just starting over from scratch. In somewhat of a similar fashion is the process of restoring one's relationship to God one that has fallen into a state of disrepair. One must begin by tearing out that which has fallen into disorder before that restoration work can begin. That's exactly what was taking place in the relationship between God's chosen people, the Jews, and the Lord. Their house, if you will, had fallen into disrepair, a state of disorder. In fact, the house was uninhabitable. While the household had been passed from father to son, from one generation to the next, the house itself had become a disaster zone. So before the cleanup could ensue, all the inhabitants of the house had to be physically removed by its owner. As you'll recall, the Jews had lost their faith in the homeowner. They doubted his promises and had chosen to live in disobedience. So the Lord asked them through the prophet Zechariah to return to him, to return to the homeland, to return to the house, and he would return to them. His invitation, made many times through many prophets, major and minor, was finally accepted by the Jews while living in Persia, and the process had begun. However, reestablishing their relationship, that relationship between a father and a son, soon hit a proverbial bump in the road. One of the conditions for living back in the land was that the people would begin to restore it. They'd begun. They'd begun the work that God had asked them to do on his house, the temple, with the promise that once it had been restored, he would again live within their midst. They would experience his presence. But instead of finishing the task in a short amount of time, they'd quit. It seems that circumstances in Jerusalem were not to their liking. 
So the tenants, now back in the land, living in the once proud city of God, with one task to complete, quit in the midst of the restoration project. Why? Why did the people quit? Why did they dither away their responsibility to God? Well, of course, they at first blamed it on others or their circumstances. They even tried to blame it on God. They thought that they had good reason for quitting. But when the Lord exhorted them through several of his prophets to re-engage in the work, they complained. Now, to be fair, the rebuilding of the temple and the city and the nation of Israel was a monumental task. It would require the cooperation of all the people of God in, and every skilled craftsman in Israel. It was soon obvious to all that the folks lacked desire and leadership to get it done. They desperately needed some help, not only in time management, but in resource management. So the Lord sent them some leaders. One of them, by the name of Nehemiah, would eventually complete the work. Yet, even after Nehemiah had completed the wall as God had commanded, the temple and the city as well, it was hardly a permanent fix. Now, last week, we looked at Zechariah's first vision. He continues that same theme, touching on the concept that God was indeed angry, but not angry with Israel anymore. He was now angry with the surrounding Gentile nations. Why? Well, as we learned last week, those surrounding nations had treated Israel and Judah very harshly. So in this second vision of Zechariah, he continues that theme with an emphasis on the judgment of God upon those Gentile nations. They had done terrible things to the Jewish people. They had gone way beyond that which God had entrusted them to do. So in very figurative language, we learn from God how he administers his judgment upon those evildoers who had crushed and even scattered the children of God. As you know, over the past several millennium, the Jews have suffered at the hands of a lot of Gentile superpowers, and yet they have survived the mayhem. History students can name these empires. They, they fall from our lips pretty easily. First it was the Assyrians, followed by the Babylonians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. Today, however, young people are probably more familiar with the atrocities committed by the Nazi Third Reich and the pogroms of the Soviet Union. But the world is still seeing a great enemy against the nation of Israel, the Islamo-fascists of the Middle East, the direct descendants of Esau. But every one of these nations, no matter what time period, no matter how big or how small these superpowers might be, they had one goal in common, and that was to eradicate the Jews from this earth. But I remind you of what God promised to Abraham. I remind you of what God said to his people. He said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. That's the basic message of Zechariah. That's the basic message of his visions, that he promised to destroy the enemies of Israel and bless his people. Would you turn with me now to Zechariah chapter 1? We're going to look at a few short verses, beginning in verse 18. If you need to use the Pew Bible, you can find this, and I hope you'll turn there with me, to page 941. Now, this morning you saw the 
New Living Translation. That's what Dave read for us this morning uh, on the screen. But today I'll be preaching from the New American Standard. And on page 941 of our Pew Bibles, we see that after Zechariah had experienced his first vision, he lowered his eyes to contemplate its meaning. And then in verse 18, we read, He then lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold... I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there were four horses, four horns, four horns. What in the world are four horns? Sue hates it when I lay on the horn in my Buick. But Zechariah is not talking about blowing your horn in your car. Zechariah is using figurative language here. He's describing what he's seeing in his vision. And he calls them four horns. Now we see in apocalyptic writing by men, not only in the Bible, but all men in ancient times, they describe things that they see in the future with the language that they have at their disposal and the information that they know. So Zechariah calls what he is seeing in his ancient mind and language simply four horns. Now, when we think about a horn today, we might think about a unicorn or maybe a rhino. And I'm not talking about Republicans in name only. If I were a man who came from Texas, like our beloved Mike Hall, who's now gone, I might picture in my mind's eye a longhorn steer. Thank God I'm not from Texas. That was supposed to be a laugh line there. What is wrong with you people? Get on the program. You've probably never been to Texas. I had had the unfortunate experience of living there for five years. Praise God for Washington State. Anyway, there's rich biblical support for believing that the horns that Zechariah has in mind here are not literal but rather figurative. Your English language might even have supplied your English text might even have supplied the word ox in front of the term horn. You should know that ox is not found in the biblical text, the Hebrew text. That's been supplied by some commentators because they think it's helpful. But back in ancient days, horns were associated with animals. But they were also used figuratively of common It was a common symbol of political and military power. Let me give you some examples of that. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, you don't have to look there, in verse 10, I'll read it for you. Those who contend with the Lord, says Samuel, will be shattered against them. He will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge and he will give strength to his kings and exalt the horns of his anointed. See, there it is. Ezekiel used it in exactly the same way in chapter 29, verse 21, where we read this. On that day I shall make a horn sprout from the house of Israel, and they will know that I am the Lord. Speaking of military and political power. Now, plainly speaking, the horn metaphorically spoke of a powerful animal who was full of strength who could do great things. But it was also attributed then to nations and people. 
So that said, most commentators of the Bible understand the four horns to be representative of four Gentile nations, or superpowers, if you will, that have dominated Israel throughout human history. We are introduced to this concept of Gentile nations and superpowers as horns in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, chapter 7, and chapter 8. I'm not going to read all of those for you, just a sampling of it from chapter 8. Daniel writes, I lifted up my gaze, similar to that of Zechariah, and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other. So one nation is more powerful than the other. With one coming up last, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, southward, and no other beast could stand before him. Nor was there anyone to rescue him from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. When I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And as he came to the ram, they had two horns, which I was standing in front of the canal, rushing at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. He shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. The male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four four winds of heaven. So there it is. Horns are a well-known, well-used, prophetic, apocalyptic ways of, of portraying power and authority of a nation. This is called a figure of speech, a metonymy, if you will, where a part of something stands for the whole of something. So the horn stands for the complete package of the animal that's powerful. In the Near East, it was common, very common, for the kings and, and uh, for people to portray their gods wearing the symbol of horns on their crowns and on their vestments. We see it in Scripture as well, as I've said. For example, another, another example from the Old Testament would be this. The Lord said to the, be bo- to the boastful, Do not boast. And to the wicked, he said, Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. And in Jeremiah, he wrote, The horn of Moab has been cut off and his arm broken. There we have it. So these four horns are some kind of a superpower, a nation which has lorded it over, if you will, the Jewish people. But who are these nations? That's a very difficult task to continue on because there are many suspects. So who are these four horns? Many commentators have their opinions about it, but there's no consensus. Some have taken the sense of this passage in a more general way. That is, they view the four horns as representatives of all nations that are hostile to the nation of Israel. Others understand these four horns as representative of the four points on the compass. That is, each one is figuratively a different direction, north, south, east, west, that kind of thing. Still others see it as the four corners of the earth, or the ends of the earth. They point to Zechariah's own usage of four 
in chapter 2 and verse 6 where we read God's warning to his, his chosen people saying this, Flee from the land of the north, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens. And in chapter 6, verse 5, the angel answered Zechariah saying, There are four spirits in heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. So the term for and the term horn can have different meanings in different contexts by different authors. The number four is significant throughout Scripture because it stands for differing concepts of four things. We've seen it so far as the the four winds, which describe the universality of the earth. It's been used of the four spirits in heaven, uh, which he seems to be talking about angelic beings. We find it in the book of, John, uh, book of Revelation where John uses it to speak of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Then a bit later he refers to it as four angels. And so what does it mean? What does Zechariah mean when he talks about the four horns? Is it winds? Is it chariots? Is it... The corners of the earth is the compass directions. Zechariah is even confused. Look at me at verse 19 where he says, what are these? Who could blame him for being confused? Have you ever read the Bible and been confused before? (laughs) I bet you have. Zechariah scratches his head and he asks the interpretive angel that we looked at last week, what are these? Are these the four judgments of God? Maybe that's what he's talking about. Didn't Ezekiel use it as judgments? He talked about war, famine, wild animals, and pestilence. Is it the four judgments? Well, in verse 19, we get some help in making the identification of what he means by the four horns. When we read the angel, this is the interpretive angel, answered Zechariah. Don't you love it when you ask a question and you get a direct answer? I do. These are the horns which have shattered, or scattered, I should say, scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Again, remember, Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem is parts standing for the whole. Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, north and south, into Israel and Judah. Jerusalem was the holy city. So he's speaking of those nations that have come and scattered, caused Israel to be taken into exile. I believe Zechariah is seeing a great span of time in this vision. Obviously, he would instantly think of the northern tribe of Israel, the southern tribe of Judah, and the nation as a whole. They had been defeated and dispersed by superpowers back in the day. So the question is, Does this cover only the recent history that Zechariah would have known? Or as a prophet of God, does this cover not only his time, but future time? Does these superpowers only include people that Zechariah would have been aware of? Or would it include superpowers that are to come that he has no idea will arise? What we do know, and what is a critical term here, is the idea of scattered. These are horns which have scattered. Have scattered is an important term. Circle it, highlight it, because it's very controversial. It appears, if you look at it in your English text, that it's written as a past tense, doesn't it? Have scattered. That would make it seem that these horns have already arisen previously. 
So then these superpowers would have existed before and in Zechariah's time, and maybe they no longer exist. If that's true, then this would point to such Gentile nations who had already oppressed Israel in the past, nations like Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, and Persia. But, here's the but, but there are some very prominent Hebrew grammarians who like to point out the language that it's written in. This have scattered is what's called a prophetic perfect tense verb. Now, see, you don't see this in the English text. That's why you need help at times when you're studying the Bible. This is what's called a prophetic perfect. A prophetic perfect tense is used to describe future events by those who write the Bible that are referring to something that hasn't taken place yet, but is so firmly committed in the mind of God that it is seen as having happened already. So if this is a Hebrew prophetic perfect, it should be translated as have scattered because these future nations would have already come and gone in the mind of God. After all, he exists outside of time. That means these four horns could speak of not only past Gentile nations, but future ones. Political power, military power that arises to harass and scatter the nation of Israel. As some of you are aware, the prophet Daniel had a vision of a statue whose body was made up of four different kinds of materials. Gold for his head, silver for his arms and chest, Iron for his belly and thighs, and his feet were made of iron and clay. All four parts of the statue were then crushed by a gigantic rock. It's clear from the writing of Daniel that the statue is symbolic of nations and that the rock is symbolic of the coming power of the kingdom of God. Most interpreters uh, believe that those four nations were the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, Greece, and then Rome. So then, if you're keeping score, some of the possibilities for the four horns are as follows. And Dan, you can put those up at this point. We have many options for sure. They could be the four points of the compass, north, south, east, west. They could be four major Gentile powers which existed in the past and were known to Zechariah. That would be Assyria, Egypt, Babylonia, and Persia. Or it could be, as most dispensationalists understand this text, most scholars who are of a dispensationalist understanding, a mixture of both the past and future superpowers. That would include Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. One big problem is that Zechariah states these horns have already been scattered if you look at just the text as it's written, having been scattered. But we discount that, again, because it's a probably a prophetic perfect. <sighs> One thing's for sure. One thing's for sure. Zechariah doesn't identify who the culprits are. Why not? He might not have known himself. He's a prophet. God is revealing these things to him. Prophets oftentimes did not know what their words meant. They were simply the messengers of God. One thing that we can definitely be sure of is that his audience would certainly have connected these powers 
these horns with world empires that they had experienced in their own lives. After all, they had been exiled. They had been taken captive by the Persians and the Babylon, by the Babylonians first and then by the Persians. However, they would know nothing if the dispensationalists are right and the future prophetic perfect is correct. They would have nothing uh, to think of in their own experience of Greece and Rome rising as world powers. Now, again, it all depends on your view of half-scattered. But Daniel spoke of the statue with these four nations represented by these different elements. And that would have been known to them, and they definitely would have had used that as part of their interpretive, interpretive understanding of Zechariah's vision. So Zechariah now looks down again or around, and he has another vision. For in verse 20 it says, or continuation of the vision, when it says, Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. We've got four horns and now four craftsmen. Okay, he wasn't sure of who the four horns was, so who are these four craftsmen? Now the word that's used here in Hebrew is karish, C-H-A-R-A-S-H. And that is not as simple to define as your English texts might make it seem. That's a word that, that refers to any kind of a skilled artisan, a craftsman, which could be a carpenter, a blacksmith, a worker in stone. You can see on the, on the uh, slide behind me from uh, one of uh, my biblical sources, that the Hebrew word encompasses all sorts of skills that this worker might have had. The word could be defined uh, according to the craftsman's medium. He could be an artisan that worked with wood, stone, metal, or even something else, maybe precious metals. Since the material of the horns isn't mentioned, we are better off understanding this term in general ways a skilled craftsman rather than a blacksmith who works with hooves of animals and, and metals. What we do know for certain is that these, these four are representative of those who will destroy the four horns. These four craftsmen will carry out the judgment of God upon these horns, these superpower Gentile nations, who have gone beyond what God had asked them to do and they had punished Israel terribly bad. So are these representative of nations, as uh, I've said, or kings? Or who are these four craftsmen? Who are these four craftsmen? A lot of questions, not too many answers. And how do these four craftsmen, smiths, blacksmiths, or however you understand that Greek word, or that Hebrew word, how do they do this? As I said, many Bible scholars have tried to identify the craftsmen as well as the horns. Some possibilities, and you can put that up, Danny, if you will, to understand them are as the nation of Medio Persia, Greece, Rome, and the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Some have understood this to be four worldly kings Cyrus, head of the Medio Persian Empire. Alexander the Great, Greece, Titus of Rome, and the Lord Jesus. Some see them as being four spiritual leaders of Israel. Zerubbabel, Joshua the priest, Ezra, and finally 
Nehemiah the wall builder. Yet some biblical scholars believe it's a waste of time even trying to identify who these are. So, in his second vision, I believe Zechariah is intending to explain the historical record and what has taken place to Israel by pointing out the four horns and the four craftsmen. These must, by necessity, overlap one another. If the first horn is to be destroyed by the first craftsman, they must overlap. The second horn must be destroyed by the second craftsman, so they must overlap. So there must be this overlapping of kings, nations, or however you interpret it, if they are to destroy the horn. If the media Persians were led by Cyrus and used by God to destroy the Babylonian Empire, that would explain who the craftsmen was, number one. If Alexander the Great was the head of the Greek Empire and destroyed the medio Persians, that would explain. So on and so forth. And the last craftsman would be the Lord Jesus Christ who would come to destroy the once regathered Roman Empire that we've heard so much about in the last 30, 40 years uh, when prophecy is spoken about. The ten horns, remember? The EU coming back together reunited Rome, right? Well, I don't really cotton to anything that's reformed, not even the Roman Empire. But that was also a a laugh line, which you guys are missing. Um, This helps us understand that this is a historical look at the past and could be the future I take it to be the future. As we look at what's happened to Israel, the nation of Israel and its people, as consistently nations have tried to destroy it, push it into the Mediterranean, completely eradicate it. Should we be a friend of Israel today? Yes. Is the world aligned against Israel today? Are they trying to destroy it? Yes. Scripture completely speaks to our day as though it's the headline of a newspaper. The last horn will be destroyed, I believe, if we understand it as Media Persia, Greece, Rome, and the millennial kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. To be yet future. In Daniel chapter 2, he seems to back that up when he writes in verse 44 this, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Boy, that sounds like the millennial kingdom to me, doesn't it to you? And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all those kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. That sounds like a craftsman to me, crushing the last horn. Well, let's look at the interpretation of this vision given by the interpretive angel in verse 21. In his vision, Zechariah has demonstrated how the Lord will raise up instruments of divine judgment in order to deliver his people from these nations or powers that are treating them terribly. It's obvious that Zechariah just didn't get all of this, like maybe you and I don't when it comes to reading apocalyptic literature. So he asked the question in verse 21, like you and I would ask, what are these coming to do? I don't get it. 
tell me, explain it to me. What he means by the phrase, what are these, he's referring to the actions of the horns and the reaction of the craftsmen to the horns. What are they going to do? How will these horns be destroyed? And the angel, interpretive angel, answers Zechariah saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man lifts up his head, but these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. Basically, the angel says to Zechariah, these are the instruments of God who is going to punish and finally destroy these evil-doing nations. How will they do that? Well, first they're going to terrify them. Just as they terrified the people of Israel. You know, today we read of rockets being shot into Israel by the thousands. We read of uh, Palestinians stabbing on a daily basis now, innocent Jews as they walk down the streets or they're at the bus station or whatever. They're terrifying the people of Israel. How would you like it if all of a sudden Lacey Olympia came under rocket attack? You never knew it was going to happen, and then all of a sudden 10, 15 rockets are dropped on your locale. Would you be terrified? You're at the bus station waiting, and then all of a sudden somebody stabs you in the back, literally. I believe we'd all be terrified. It says that the Jews were so afraid that they couldn't even lift their heads. They were in hiding. They didn't want to come out and poke their heads out. That's what it's going to be like during the tribulation. That's what it's going to be like when all hell is rained down on earth as God destroys that final horn. The reassembled, the reformed Roman Empire. Now, these craftsmen all carry a figurative toolbox for their trade. These horns will be destroyed by the pounding of the craftsmen upon their horn. Remember, the horn is part, stands for the whole. These powerful empires will be destroyed, first terrified, but then they will be stripped of their military and political power. Each succeeding divinely commissioned craftsman will destroy their selective horn. Jesus speaks of their destruction. Now get this. Jesus speaks of this destruction of the four horns in his diatribe about the times of the Gentiles. It's a very important phrase within the scriptures. Let's look at it in Luke chapter 21 and verse 24. Here Jesus says, They will fall by the edge of the sword, and they will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until, until, until the times of the Gentiles has been fulfilled. All of these superpowers will secede one after the other until the times of the Gentiles has been fulfilled. Up until that time, they will pound, they will destroy, they will have the edge of the sword against the nation of Israel and Jerusalem, but the time is coming when the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. And every one of these superpowers will be destroyed. Now, this vision of Zechariah is compatible completely with the great prophecies found in Daniel, because he talks about the times of the Gentiles there as well. The same exact scenario, in fact, is in Zechariah's vision as it is in Daniel's. He talks about the crushing of the three horns by the hand of God and then the the nation, or or the uh, millennial kingdom, crushing the fourth. 
But I'm not going to turn there. What I want to turn to and read to you is an important passage. It's called a royal psalm, and it speaks of Jesus' reign on earth. In Psalm chapter 2, we're going to look at the first 12 verses, or I'm going to read them to you. And here, in these sentences of the psalmists, this same exact scenario. The psalmist asks, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, and then he will speak to them in his anger. Where do you see anger? Book of Zechariah. He speaks to them in their anger and terrifies them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Mount Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Thou shalt break them. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and and rejoice with trembling. Do homage unto the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be rekindled kindled against you. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. The Lord has not forgotten his people. God has not forgotten you and me. No matter how bad things get in the United States, now, no matter how much we would like the Lord to return and save us from this political mess we find ourselves in, God has not forgotten us. There's four craftsmen. I believe three have already come, but there's one yet to come, and he's coming soon. And he's going to destroy the agents of the evil one, the reformed Roman Empire. The psalmist anticipates this. Zechariah anticipates this. There's a coming deliverance which cannot be stopped. God is going to crush his enemies and install his son on Mount Zion to rule and reign from Jerusalem for a little, literal thousand years. I don't know about you, but that excites me. I can't wait till he installs me as mayor over Maidens, Virginia. Now, there's a lot of things we can speculate on in this text. Prophetic texts are basically speaking of the unknown, the future, the yet not happened. What's anticipated? How we understand it is often in the hands of the individual explaining the text. But what we do know for sure is the historical record. You can't deny the historical record unless you want to deny the Holocaust and be one of those crazy nuts. In 722, Assyria was destroyed, by the, destroyed, I should say, the northern kingdom of Israel, carrying it off into exile. But then the Lord raised up divinely Babylon to defeat Assyria in 586 B.C. 
And then Babylon carried Judah off into captivity and mistreated her. But then the Lord raised up Cyrus, a media Persia, to conquer, defeat, and terrify Babylon at 539 B.C. And then, in just a few years, the Jews were allowed to return home in small groups, back to the homeland, back to the Holy Land. And soon the medo persians were conquered by the Greeks. The Greeks, led by Alexander the Great, marched in and destroyed medo persia and dominated the world. But soon, the Greek alliance fell apart. And the conquering armies of Rome defeated Greece. So we see here exactly what the text tells us. These horns, these superpowers, are crushed by other superpowers or craftsmen. And in these last days, there's another superpower coming who's going to crush the Antichrist. He's going to crush the beast. He's going to save the Jews, and Israel will be the place on earth that he makes his domain. He will reign from Jerusalem. He will reign from Jerusalem. We should love Israel because those who bless Israel, God will bless. And those who hate Israel, God will destroy. And we're going to hear a lot more about this coming Messiah that will destroy the Reformed Roman Empire in the future, especially in the last portion of the book. So how can we apply this text to our lives today? It's an ancient book written 25, 2800 years ago. How can we apply this to our lives? Well, what we can take from this book is we can trust the Lord. He keeps his promises. If we return to him, he will return to us. Our future is secure. When I think about the Lord returning, it's not a hope-so belief. It's a no-so belief. I believe Jesus Christ is coming again. If God is sovereign, which I believe he is, he can put together all of the pieces of human history and show them to be his plan. And that's what we see in this text. God is sovereign not only over our lives, but all of human history. God is not only sovereign over human history, he's sovereign over our lives. Nothing catches our God by surprise. Not my failures, not my successes, not some disease that I might suffer or some auto accident I might be involved with, the loss of a loved one, nothing catches God by surprise. He knows the future as much as he knows today. He's not bound by time like you and I are. We can trust him because he knows the beginning from the end. And he has said that we will be with him. Just as he has said to Israel, that he will rule over them and reign over them, and they shall be his people. No matter what men try to do, Hitler tried to annihilate them, Stalin tried to kill every Jew in the Soviet Union, God will be glorified by his people because they are his and he is theirs. Just like you and I are his sheep 
and He cares for us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we trust You. We might not understand everything, but we trust You because You are the God of the past as well as the God of the future. You are the God over my failures and my life, my successes, my tribulations. Help us, Father, to see life in that light. The Jews failed you miserably, but you still love them. We might fail you miserably, but you still love us, Father. Help us to trust in that and to live godly in this present world as we look forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ in power and glory when he will reign from Jerusalem and we shall reign with him. Father, let that be our hope. Let that be our guiding mantra, no matter what takes place in this world. Help us, Father, to have that trust. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.